Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media and, and uh, digital production. Uh, one thing to note is we have a lot of accessibility experts uh, in our first hour session. So if you've got questions about accessibility, go ahead and throw those in uh, to Makana. Uh, the second hour, uh, we're going to be have Robert uh, Sababadi and Dr. Danielle Deher, Deher is going to be here uh, to talk about interpretation. Uh, so, and when we talk about interpretation, uh, this is corporate interpretation um, services. This is people giving you another language uh, based on what your, you know, based on whatever is going on in the event. It's really important, and in a lot of international events and. It, events that are pointed internationally. Uh, it's something we use a lot, and these are two experts. And so if you've got questions about uh, that audio interpretation, then uh, go ahead and throw those in as well. Let's go ahead and jump into the first question. Mitch, what do we have? Thanks, Alex. First question in from Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado. Jack asks, with many cameras and sensors, the Vision Pro interface could be ASL-based. Panel thoughts? Uh, go ahead, Brendan. Sure. Well, of course, you know, we want everything to be signed. And we, what I think is, uh, we talked about it a little bit last week, uh, Saturday last week. It's a very cool, uh, version post has a, like a lot more added and it's a lot more digital. So you can see people signing and it's like a VR device where you just have you know, you can only see a specific part. And so that limits the field of vision. So yeah, I think there's a lot of potential in there to be able to recognize sign language. At the same time, it's limited. It's more just where you're looking at. So it's the vision is not completely there. So you're not seeing the full picture. I think we, we're trying to use AI now to make a better estimate of how to guess where the signing space is. And so you can actually see in front of the viewer instead of, um, you know, when you see the like the sign P, the letter P, you have to look at your hand shape and you have to see because there's a lot of the, the letter K looks the same. And it's only one way. I think for right now, because it's only one way, it, you know, 3D, it's great and everything. But how does interpreter recognize a sign? How will how will that go through? That's the problem. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting. That one of the things that's really I've been spending a lot of time with the um, with the WWDC sessions and looking at what the structure looks like. That's what all of us are doing right now. And uh, one of the things is the concept of the the windows of being able to just move those windows around inside of your space. So you have a space, and then we have windows and volumes inside of those spaces. And I think that it's going to be interesting to see. Um, being able to just move the windows around and decide where we want what what makes the most sense, um, I think is going to be really powerful um, as we as we move forward of uh, being able to figure that out. And you know those windows can have transparency, so we could cut the person you know cut somebody out, have them just seat, seat, seated there. I mean, using the depth depth information, eventually we're going to be able to you know have someone maybe in front of a, a phone being able to do ASL and then have it brought back in as extra data. I think that one of the things that's going to be really interesting is the interaction between the phone. Yep, exactly. Uh, between the phone and uh, and the, the headsets, because the phones are, are great delivery devices for the headsets. Um, and I'm, it's going to be really interesting to see, for instance, 
uh, I was thinking after last week's show, it's going to be really interesting because I think that the phone within the next two versions will probably have 3D sensors, um, stereo sensors on the phone. You know, it, it takes very little if we if we think about the phone uh, being here like this. If we turn the phone like this already, these two sensors here are are already at a distance that could generate stereo. It feels like it's too close together, but the hydrogen from the the hydrogen from red was the sensors were half the distance that we see on the current phone. And so if it spreads out a little bit more um, using computational photography, uh, it should be able to give us a really nice stereo vision. So theoretically, with a phone um, or with another headset looking at looking at somebody, you could have uh, ASL, you know, in 3D or in stereo, not just not just a 2D, um, you know, thing. I don't know if that helps. I guess that would be something that, that would be a, a question for Brendan as to whether a, a 3D uh, would a 3D Vi version of an ASL interpreter make a difference for for someone like you? Like, would 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 it make a difference for you? Yeah, for example, like three uh, D would be uh, very cool in in AR. And also, you think about Star Wars. Think about the movie Star Wars, and you have uh, Leia sitting there, you know making that conversation and they put it in there. If we could put that in the glasses, that would be really cool to have that perspective. And 2D, it's not really there, but sometimes it would help because if you could get closer to real life, be more realistic, that would be a better context. Uh, instead of yeah. 3D, instead of 2D. And, and it would be a cool factor would be there, but... You can still do 2D. 2D still works. 3D would be would take up more processing, would take up more power. We just have to figure out how that would work. Yep. Yep. No, absolutely. It'd be cool for interpreters as well, though. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see because but then you have to are... afford the glasses. So well, that's expensive. <laughs> well, I think that, you know, I, I think that the, the glasses that we are that some of us will probably try to get a hold of next week, next year. <clears throat> are two years before the real glasses. Like these are the these are the glasses that you know you have to give to developers to um, and for you know folks to figure out what the market looks like. And so I don't think that you know I think these are these are just a wide gamma test of of the uh, of the process just to see you know what what will be useful and also give people time to build the apps so that when there's a, a, I think that and I do think that. And I worked on a lot of testing for the Oculus uh, headsets, you know, building lots of content for it um, about uh, almost 10 years ago. And, um, and so I think that uh, um, you have to, you, there's no way to, do, to understand what works until you do it. Like you just, you put your, you, you shoot, we would shoot footage and put it on and put it on our headset and then shoot footage and put it on. And it's the only way to know if it's working or not. And you can't, you know, so I think that they just has, they had, at some point, Apple had to release something that, that let people play with it. Uh, next question. Next question in from Paul Wallace in uh, Austin, Texas. Paul asks, how do you put together A, YouTube Shorts, and B, the new feature YouTube Podcasts? Go ahead, Jeffrey. I'm going to take the second part first because that's the easier one. Uh, all you have to do, if you've been approved to do podcasts, you will see a podcast tab. And uh, you just have to create a playlist that is also a podcast. You'll give it a thumbnail and then uh, whatever videos you put in, whether it be a vertical, whether it be a horizontal video, 
those will uh, uh, if as as long as you put it in the playlist, it will show up in the podcast area. As for making the YouTube shorts, uh, that's a pretty broad question. There's many different ways to do it. Like for instance, I could take this GoPro Hero Nine, turn it this way, and I could make a short. As long as it's a minute long or under a minute, I like to do mine at 59.57. Uh, that way that it sneaks under that uh, one one minute and you because if you go over a minute, then it's considered a regular YouTube video. Um, and uh, with that, you can also do 16 by, uh, I always mess it up, 16 by 9, or is that 9, nine by 16? 9 by 16, That's yeah. right. 9 by 16, or 4 by 3, so you can do a square or vertical video, and both of them can be considered shorts. Yeah, and and we're really thinking about, um, so we're going to, we've been mostly on the Apple platform for the for Michael Krasny's Gray Matter um, dot show, and the... I, I think that we're planning to go and put everything, you know, uh, that we moving forward. I tend not to be a historical person, so once I once I do something, I, I'm done with it. <laughs> like, and so so it'll be all the new shows uh, that we put out. Um, we'll probably go into um, a YouTube channel, um, and we are going to put them into the podcast. One of the things that we're working on r- right now is a back end production process that would allow us to record live we already have a 16 by 9 but record live a 9 by 16 uh, conversation um, automatically so just have it pre you know pre-built and just recording out so that um, we can then cut it up into shorts um, theoretically without having to like reformat it or you know reassemble it or anything else it's just a live show that we could just simply just head and head and tail certain sections um, to to put them out and we were looking at some of the ai stuff now that you can just we're going to test just taking the podcast and just throwing it at at AI and let it pull out the the nine or ten things it thinks it's worth, um, you know, grabbing onto and and then pick the ones that we we've had some friends that have done that already and it's been really successful. <laughs> so so we're gonna uh, we were kind of surprised by it. So we'll we'll see how that goes. Uh, next question from Bobby Reverty in Florida asking. Vision OS tools are now available for developers from Apple. Do they require the latest Mac OS? They do. They definitely uh, require the very latest. I don't, you might be able to use the, I don't know if, I don't think you need to, I don't know if you need Sonoma. I don't think you do, Um, but you definitely need otherwise um, the the latest uh, and greatest. I think that, I do believe that um, the new uh, Reality Composer Pro will need it. Uh, <clears throat> we'll do, do that, but I'm not. I'm not 100 percent sure um, of, of it. I haven't jumped into those the tools yet. I've just been watching the videos. So um, one of the things that I'm really excited about is the Reality Composer Pro. Um, I think that what one of the things that Apple has done uh, really well, and I think this is the part that that Oculus had a little trouble with, is making an environment that was easy to develop for. So you're taking uh, concepts that that iOS and Mac OS and tvOS already have, and you're just moving a little over, and there's already an entire environment develop, um, environment to build in. Uh, most of the stuff that we built for Oculus was uh, in Unity. And so we, you know, in Unity was a lot of, lot of tools <laughs> to, to build something oftentimes relatively simply that we could have put together very quickly in something like Reality Composer Pro, which is a nodal-based, uh, you know, environment gener- generation package. Um, and so it's got, you know, a lot of, and it's come a long way. We've been playing with Reality Composer for the last couple of years. Um, and so um, I think that between that and 
existing code bases and, and a really well thought out process. Um, I think that we're going to see a lot and we're going to be probably, we're trying to bring some folks, some experts on from that are, have already dug into Reality Composer Pro and we'll probably do a second hour and then do some labs um, in it to let us start to, to play with that. So, so stay tuned for that. Next question. From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, Paul asks, compare Unity to Telos VIP and other comms solutions. Cheapest, best? Now we're shifting gears here. We have two Unities. And so there's Unity, the game engine, and Unity, the comms system. And unfortunately for us, they exist, both of them exist in our world. <laughs> so, we, so we have to shift. I believe that this conversation is about Unity, the comms. So this is the, uh, what, we, what we listen to for the, for the show. Go ahead, Mitchell. Uh, Paul, I can give you the top three, at least in my book. Uh, ClearCom is uh, top of the stack. They're not listed in your list there, but they are undisputably the uh, king of the mountain. Um, the uh, Telos VIP is a newcomer. Uh, the folks at uh, Telos uh, Systems that makes lots of audio devices uh, have some very interesting concepts there, and they would make a great second hour, by the way. And the Unity is what we're using, and that's software only. Yeah, they all go about, you know, go about it in different, um, you know, different markets. So uh, Riedel is considered usually the high watermark of the process. It's very complex. Um, it is very, very powerful and it's very clear. <laughs> so, um, and so the uh, Riedel is, is something that we see a lot of in the higher end facilities, but it takes a lot to manage. And one of the things as, as, as um, Mitchell had alluded to is that ClearCom has really moved forward and I would say is really, um, you know, uh, challenging Riedel uh, a, a lot because of uh, a lot of technology that was, re there was a company called HME that uh, that was, ClearCom was buying equipment from HME or, or licensing what we call OEM. So they were buying it and repackaging it as their own. HME builds all the headsets for Starbucks and McDonald's and, you know, everything else. And there's no margin and it's all cheap and it's all you know everything else but they had this one wireless system that clearcom worked with them on and it made a lot more money per unit than what they were doing with starbucks and so hme decided why don't we just buy clearcom <laughs> so, so so they bought so suddenly clearcom which has been around arguably since the beginning you know really um uh the they suddenly got a lot more money, a lot more infrastructure, and a lot more technology injected into them. And what we're seeing every year is that system picking up speed. You know, so like for instance, when we do wireless, if you're doing a really large event, we do see Riedel show up. What's what they call the Bolero system um, shows up. But there's a that's a it's a really heavy system. It's really complicated in the north in in most of the West Coast. If I work on a very large event, there's a guy named Chopper. Like literally, we call him Chopper. I don't know what his real name is. And Chopper manages the Riedel system. <laughs> you know, so we just know that if there's a Riedel system, Chopper is in the building somewhere. You know, like putting this together because it kind of takes someone that really understands it to make it really work across the entire system. Um, and so the uh, so and we'll see if we can get Chopper on for a second hour. It'd be really fun to talk to him. He's a great guy. Um, anyway, so uh, so that is, we see that occasionally, but what we mostly see are FreeSpeak. So Clear, ClearCom's own wireless is called FreeSpeak and FreeSpeak 2. Um, th these are the two that we see the most, um, and, and that's what we rent typically when we put those together. And um, they're just, they, they provide what we need and they're relatively easy to set up and they tie in with the rest of our, our systems well, whether we're using Unity or ClearCom or other things. From there, ClearCom has a matrix system, which we've used a lot, and it's got 
you know, matrix that can handle things locally, but it can also has, has cards in it where we can add phones and computers and all kinds of other things on the edge to make that all possible. So um, it's a pretty in-depth system that allows us to do everything from a phone all the way to panels, um, as well as the other bits and pieces. And so, um, so RTS, by the way, there's one other one called RTS. It does fine. Uh, it is a, you can all, anytime someone brings an RTS system, you assume that they grew up in a truck. I, what I mean by that is they grew up not in a truck, like not a box truck or something or a van by the river, but really a, uh, a, a, a broadcast truck. Um, so the broadcast truck is what all broadcast trucks seem to use RTS. Um, we never see them anywhere else. <laughs> like so, except for people who used to work in a truck will come out and use the RTS system. And so we always kind of make decisions really quickly. Uh, Clearcom is much more of an event-based um, uh, headset. And then you have uh, Unity, which is a software-based system, as Mitchell said, and Unity is very inexpensive, very limited compared to these other systems. So a lot of people who say, you know, will get excited about Unity, um, usually it's just because they haven't used the other systems. <laughs> so we, we, we use Unity and it's very cost effective, but it's not nearly as robust. We don't have uh, as many PLs. We, the interface is very limited in how we get around. Um, you know, there's just not as much that you can do on a large, large event. Um, you can tie a handful of groups together with Unity effectively, but I find that it's pretty difficult to use uh, in complex events. And so that's the, um, that is the, the breakup. Now, what was talking, what Paul mentioned here was Telos the, uh, VIP, and we are going to try to get Telos on. Uh, it's really interesting. So what Unity is missing is any hardware. I mean, they have partnerships and people use it. And you can put, you know, we've used it with Dante and lots of other things, but um, they don't really have dedicated hardware. So Telus is, is a less expensive solution than Clearcom RTS and um, Riedel, but it is a, uh, it, but it also has hardware and it also is kind of cloud-based that allows you to organize those things. And so I think it's a really smart move on Telus's part. And we haven't had the opportunity to really play with it very much yet. Um, but, but I think that it was, they filled a, a, a gap you know, between the higher end hardware and 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 then also software based ones like Unity, there's a gap that I think Telos filled quite nicely um, with their with their hardware. And I think that um, I don't know how well it's doing. I know, I, but right before the pandemic started, I actually had a meeting with them about it, and it looked really promising. But it's been now a couple of years, and so hopefully we'll be able to bring them on and have them kind of show us where they are now. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, of the systems you mentioned, uh, Alex, how many of them can be managed remotely from like can Chopper? Uh, work a job that's uh, in uh, New York when he's in California? Uh, you, you can, but when these, the systems get so complex that it really is something that when you're on a, when, you, when if you're in Javits Center or if you're in Moscone, there's a lot of networking, there's people to talk to, there's he people actually have headsets and they have panels. So the person like Chopper is running around and he's setting that he like, he's making sure that panel works because a panel what a panel looks like is it's it can be um, four like a little hand, head little belt pack will have maybe four buttons on it. A panel will have anywhere from twelve to I think as many as forty eight buttons on it on the front of it. And so those those buttons are all either directs I can talk directly to Mitchell or PLs that I can talk to groups. Um, with PLs are party lines, so these are I can talk to, but I can have any combination of those on the front of that, and it's either a one U, two U, or a or a or a desktop um, device. Um, and, uh, and, but each one of them has to work. And so you, you, you have, it's usually not a person. If you see someone like Chopper on there, it is a, 
there's a small team that's putting these together. They're setting them down on everybody's desks. They're checking them. They're jumping in, making sure that, and, and people will say, oh, I don't really want this PL on this button. I need it over here. And I need this button over here. And someone's calling and saying, hey, move this to button three. And, and, and for, you know, for the kind of events that these are used on, sometimes we're setting out for two weeks. So, so, so it's, it, you know, it's there, they start running around about four, you know, four or five days before we, you know, there's load in and there's all kinds of stuff that everybody's on walkie talkies because there isn't any wire, there isn't anything wired. Um, and, uh, but the, um, but once they're loaded in and once the system comes up, then, then they'll spend a couple of days running around making sure that everybody's there, but it's really a whole team. And, and for a, a large physical event, it's really hard not to be there for that for that kind of thing. Um, you know, we definitely run Unity systems remotely all the time. <laughs> you know, like we're doing that right now. The Unity system that we're on, um, you know, runs uh, is is running out of Wisconsin, I think, or Detroit. Um, and uh, uh, and we the one that we run for our shows is right out of our office. And so those are, but but everybody's remote in those areas. So you can on some of the smaller systems when you're doing something really large at a large facility, you need people to you know to take care of it. Uh, next question. From Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado, Jack asks, with the Vision Pro enabling spatial audio, could you see bone conduction technology used for the low-frequency signal? I go ahead, Courtney. Well, possibly, because you know, low-frequency low frequency is pretty non-directional, but you'd have to keep it from interfering with the audible uh, spatial image that's coming in through those transducers on either side of your ears in the uh, vision pro so it'd take a lot of calibration to do that it's gonna have to contact your head and it would seem to make it a little more uncomfortable maybe another solution would be an add-on that is a, a cushion that you put uh, in your back with a large driver in it that uh, thumps your chest for all the low frequency stuff that might be more <laughs> a better a better plan for apple to you know, sell an auxiliary device to use with Vision Pro. Yeah, and for those wondering what that is, the, these are bone conduction uh, headsets. And so these have little, let's see if I can cover my eye. These have these little, um, they're not really earpieces, they're just little pads. And um, those pads sit on our cheekbones and they literally just drive the audio through our bone to our ear. Um, the, the real problem is fidelity is not very good. These are good for talking to people. They're not great for listening to music or or anything else like that, and so so that's a that's not really a uh, a great use for them. And it, when there's too much bass, they tickle, <laughs> so so they, they, they a lot. So so um so that I don't think that they're a great solution for uh, that. I, I find that sometimes when someone talks too loud, I I have to take them off because they're they're actually um, tickling the side of my in a in a very odd way. Like it's a it's a not a not a good not a good kind of tickle. I don't know if there's any good tickle, but this is this is definitely not it. Um, and so uh, so anyway, so I think that um, uh, so I, I don't think that they're going to use that. I do think we're going to see more and more. And I think that one of the things that's really interesting is the possibility of being in a room that still has big speakers. You you, you may have headphones, and they've talked about making those available for your uh, being able to use headphones. Uh, for the plane, I, I didn't notice they didn't show using the Apple Extremes, you know, the AirPod Extremes, because I think they it it might have made it look too much like a helmet. But that's definitely the way I would use it if I can. Is to have you know if I'm on a on a on a plane, I want the big headset. I I'm a, really okay with a helmet. Like I just think that you know, just pulling down a helmet, just kind of going total Boba Fett would um would totally work for me uh, as far as uh, 
as far as a headset. I feel like they that, that maybe they'll go go there with the Pro Pro or the or just just call it the Vision Boba Fett. I think that would that would be great. So uh, if you have uh, if you have questions, um, you'll notice that we we answer the questions when there's not as many questions as most mornings. We answer the questions in, in a lot of detail. So if you have questions um, uh, uh, for uh, for us in this first hour, it can be about accessibility. We've got a lot of great accessibility uh, experts here in the panel or about media and digital media production in general. You can go ahead and throw those into the question system right now and make sure to vote on them so we know what order you'd like us to answer them in. Let's go to the next question. Another great question from Morgan Price in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. Uh, Morgan asks, can you share advantages to not doing shared screen keynote presentations in Teams and Zoom and instead running it through your camera feed, maybe through ATEM, I'm too worried about how resolution of my video and other meetings to do this. I go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah, low resolution uh, from somebody else's camera is always a problem. And then when they show uh, they show uh, something like their desktop, uh, yeah, it's it's tough. My rule of thumb is if I don't control the meeting, if I don't control the start of the meeting, uh, if it's not through my profile, then I give them a disclaimer. This is what could happen. If uh, if we if you start sharing your screen uh, with with anybody else, so uh, if you have to deal with uh, somebody else's Teams instance, then put out that disclaimer. If you can do it, because if you control the Teams experience, you can uh, change the settings for the best options for that experience. Yeah, the the main thing is is that the the big advantage for for me, and I I do agree with with Jeffrey is that I want to usually control the meeting because my settings um, in Zoom are at a 1080p video, not, they're not dumbed down to 720 like Teams. And so, um, and so the, uh, so anyway, or every, and pretty much everything else, there's very few 1080s for video. Uh, if I, if I am going to present to Teams or if I'm, not, if I'm on somebody else's um, meeting, uh, what I'll do is I will screen share QuickTime. So I will open up QuickTime and I will screen share QuickTime and optimize for video. And I will get the resolution of a screen share, but I will be running my switcher back into QuickTime. So QuickTime is just a camera that just provides a, a window. And so I'll put that in the window and say screenshot and I'll put it, I've, I have a lot of screens. <laughs> so so I have, so I'll put it over here and um, and then screen share it. So then I'll get the 1080p back um, from that, uh, you know, uh, you know, it, but in uh, now the, the thing I have to know is if I'm playing you a video, I have to let people know that it will be a little bit lower frame rate because when you do a screen share, you are choosing between uh, frame rate and resolution. Um, it's the same amount of bandwidth and it's doing the best it can, but when you do that, it's gonna jump. Now, if someone has, a, a again, an account that doesn't have 1080p, then you definitely wanna use uh, that kind of, that hack that I just talked about will work on a Mac um, most of the time. The big thing for me is that I, I don't, I do a lot of presentations. I, I don't know how to do the presentation. Like I'm, I have a presentation I give a couple times a week right now uh, for work. I don't know how to do it without uh, four computers, an iPhone and, a, and an iPad. Like they're all, like someone asked if I could come in and do it in person. And I was like, I can't, like I can't, I, I, I can't, I can't come in to show you this. I can only do it sitting in this, in this chair because I've got, I've got, you know, three Mac minis here. I've got a studio here. I've got a phone that's mounted here to show you pieces of it. I've got an iPad that I have to, you know, jump into and do it. I've got, you know, there's a lot of pieces to the whole puzzle. 
um, to, to do the presentation. And so, uh, and I also have, you know, a Telestrator over top of all of it, you know, so, so the, um, so, and you, you, one computer is doing the presentation, another computer is doing the computer, you know, showing the interfaces, another computer, you know, another present, another computer is, um, doing something else. I can't remember now. It takes about a half an hour for me to set the, the event up. <laughs> so, so anyway, so the, um, but that is what I can't do with screen share. And when I watch people try to show things in screen share, it just looks really painful to me. You know, like I'm, I just don't, I'm like, oh, that's, <laughs> you, uh, you, you know, like uh, that looks really hard. Um, yeah, go ahead, Brendan. Right. And for accessibility, as far as the deaf community, what I prefer to do is have a stream manager for presentations because, well, number one, I'm deaf and looking at all those screens would just be crazy for me. And then also seeing people in the individuals, they come across across video very small when you're in a big meeting. So I have one computer and then I have that also. Um, if I do have a second computer, that does help. The second thing that's really important, to, especially with interpreters, is to have that separate stream, and I guess it's called HTM here. And the video production can manage, video producing can manage the interpreters because sometimes the interpreters get lost in the meeting. That's a great point. It's a re really good point. Do you ever, uh, a question for Brendan, do you, uh, do you ever have a second monitor that is just the interpreter? So not, you know, just another monitor from the that that's by your camera or, or something else that is just, just the interpreter coming to you? No, no, no. Well, I used to, let me correct that. I used to, um, when COVID first hit, I did have those two monitors, but just switching back and forth, even though they're side by side, was still um, overwhelming. So with Zoom, I can then place the the interpreter. Um, what do they call that? I could just um, pin the interpreter and enlarge the interpreter, but I can only do it with the one individual. So now I do have to switch back and forth. I'm still really not accustomed to the um, the ASL functionality that might, I mean, the, the Zoom functionality that might work using an ASL interpreter. <clears throat> Sometimes I do lose the interpreter, like I said, so then I have to go search them out again. Um, screen share, I can screen share, when I'm screen sharing, then it, I can have that interpreter remain a constant on my screen. And so that makes it easier. Do you have two mon do you have the second mon the second zoom screen the, there's most of us if we have more than one monitor we have two zoom screens do you have you have two I do I do have two yes but you so the second you have a second zoom screen that pops open second. right automatically or do you Like if I have two, if I have dual monitors, then yes. But there's always the 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 issue with the interpreter and keeping the interpreter right. in the in the window. the The reason I ask is that if we, um, I'm thinking how we can make our show better for you 
if we had a way to send um, to a certain feed that's always going to be the active interpreter for you, you could pin on that screen and it would always be the right one. It would all, that, that screen would always be the one that you, you, you would never have to go back and look. So we, we will work on that. <laughs> so we will, like, we'll see if we can figure that out. Yeah, and I can send you my ideas as well. Um, yeah. We have, you know, I have done um, production on several events and um, Meta has um, a lot of the the special, you know, unique things that they do that I have learned. So I will definitely send you. And thank you so much for your efforts. Yeah, I, one of our big, one, what we're really excited about here is the idea to use these these uh, eight sessions or seven sessions to do, to figure, to innovate, to figure out what is the best way to do this. Not what can we do right now, but like really what could we keep on adding to the system to make it better? It's rare for us to get to do eight of these in a, in a row, you know? And so that's something that we're, you know, we're excited about um, to, in a way that when there's big budgets, we can't experiment. You know, like, so when it's a, you know, when it's a quarter million dollar budget or a half million dollar budget, we just have to get it done. Uh, but here we can play a little bit and try to figure out better ways to do things. So we're, we're really excited. So thank you for uh, giving, I'm thinking about, thinking about that. So uh, next question. Next one in from Vincent Alvarez in Bellingham, Washington. How should I teach a novice to address their new Shure FV, uh, MV7 microphone on a low slung arm for Zoom? Uh, talk down the tube, talk past it to the side, what angle to position it, distance away from the mouth. I don't want to overwhelm them too. Go ahead, Jeffrey. My rule of thumb is always say, uh, have the microphone point to the corner of your mouth, at least a fist different distance, uh, and, and get it as close as possible. Uh, I have this overslung right now, but with my underslung uh, down in, in the other studio, um, I do the same thing, and that will keep from any type of plosives, because if you talk directly into this microphone without any conditioning to it, you will get plosives. Good, Courtney. Yeah, I'd suggest at least three to four inches away, not as close as possible, because I, I see people on podcasts all the time with the MV7 that are talking right in here, and it becomes very annoying. Because remember, a dynamic microphone, and you want to try and keep it as much in front without having the plosives. A little bit below helps because if you look at how a dynamic microphone works, it's a moving coil. So the sound waves come in here and have to move that coil. That coil only moves in one direction, which is back and forth over the top of a cylindrical magnet. So the strongest sound comes in from basically perpendicular to that coil or along the same axis as the coil. So it's the more you can move that directly in, in front of the axis without uh, causing pops into the, into the microphone with plosives, uh, the, the louder the sound is going to be. But you don't want to get too close because then you can start popping and then you can, you know, you'll be too loud for that dynamic microphone if you're right on top of it. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, all great advice. And just for a little background, uh, my AKG in front of me is a side address. So I have to have the side slightly off off axis but the uh, mv7 is a top address which is good because if you hang it like uh, jeffrey has he can put it on an angle and get the side shot there or it can be pointed straight down but um it's important to uh, to keep those plosives away because it sounds bad and uh, another trick is try not to 
put plosives on your microphone when you're speaking. Uh, uh, when I pop my P's, which is a plosive sound, um, I generally th- try to smile through them. So sometimes the best place to avoid uh, those problems is to eliminate them in the first place. Yeah, I I, I will say that I um, I usually tell people when, when they're getting started, there's a lot of things that we might do once we get used to this. But I usually tell people that there is a channel, a channel here that's between our two eyes, between these two edges. And I don't want to see any mic in that channel. <laughs> like if they're, if they're sitting there, I just don't. That's where we breathe. And so that's where all of the all of our air goes and everything else. And so I, we usually, this, there's a box here that we just try to keep people out of. Um, it it's, it's correct that you may want it in front of them at times, but I never put it in front of somebody who hasn't, doesn't have a lot of mic technique. Um, so I almost, even with the MV7, I'll put, put it off to one side and I, uh, have, have begun to start putting the pop filter on front in front of that, um, for the show that we're using it for, uh, mostly to just make sure that there's no popping that goes on. It is pretty, uh, susceptible to popping. Um, it does fall off relatively quickly. Um, so I would say three or four inches is the maximum distance from somebody. And, you also want to look at what kind of um, preamp you're using. Uh, we've, we've noticed, we, we moved from my Scorpio to a X32. The X32 gain on their on the inputs is not, not enough <laughs> so, uh, for those mics. And so we're going to either switch mics or we're going to, uh, um, you know, we'll move, the, change the mics or put a preamp in, ahead of it to give it a little more gain before it gets in. We're not going to use a cloud lifter in case you're wondering. Uh, next question. Oh, go to Mitchell. Mitchell, go ahead. I just wanted to say quickly, also, it depends on what kind of a uh, presentation you want. Uh, Podcaster generally like the mic in the shot, and then you have to do everything that everybody was telling you. Um, For people that like the the, uh, mic out of the shot, uh, you obey the rules that Alex just mentioned, and you're less likely to have pops, just like I have it. I don't have my mic in the shot. Yeah, I I like to hear it well, so I I keep the mic in the shot. (laughs) I, 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 I care you know care care about that so i um, you know i think it sounds better uh, next question morgan morgan price uh from victoria british columbia See? canada little known but helpful apple keynote fact you can present in a window and show presenter notes hover over the top of the presentation window and there's a little button on the top right to show presenter display uh morgan is, is, is he this is this is, this came from another conversation because one of the reasons i don't use that I, I said I wasn't using the presenter window. So Keynote has, during COVID, Apple added to Keynote, uh, present to a window so that people could use it in their, in their uh, more easily use it inside of Zoom. I mean, typically, or, or any other presentation or any other uh, video um, conferencing. But the problem was, is that it doesn't automatically give me another window. And, and for those of us who do a lot of presentations, Having that extra window that shows me the next slide uh, has slide notes, has a lot of other things there, really important to me. And so, so I uh, I need that window up, and I couldn't, so I wouldn't. That's I mean, I I literally bought another computer <laughs> to so that I could run my presentations into my switcher because I needed to be able to do two monitors and have that up there. So so it's. Um, and I do a lot of presentations, and so it's it's important. That's why my system is so complicated. And so, but um, but I couldn't the the window um uh this is important i had no idea that i could actually pull out presenter notes so i'm going to definitely check that out probably before the end of the show <laughs> i won't i don't think i'll be able to wait until nine uh to, to figure that out so yeah uh, next question paul wallace in austin texas uh, asked austin has a huge population using asl texas school for the deaf uh, austin asl school etc 
How can office hours reach out to this population? Go ahead, Brendan. Well, hello there, Austin. Yeah, Austin is three hours from me, and I go regularly. And <clears throat> I mean, people can get in touch with Texas School for the Deaf. Um, you can, you know, pull up their website, and um, you can, you know, learn about all of the resources there. They also have a great number of um, really cool, like, deaf-owned businesses. Um, one is Crepe Crazy. It's in Austin. I think it's in South Austin, I believe. And I think they might have one um, in the Southwest Austin area as well. But um, I have some contacts and I can, um, I am happy to share those with you. And um, yeah, thank you, Paul. Nick, uh, go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah, exactly. That I, I, a little known fact, I took two semesters of ASL. Uh, I did it in the 90s because I was working at a bar and me and another bartender, we, they had a group of people that were playing uh, volleyball, uh, had a league, uh, the uh, Madison Deaf area. And so we found out about the Madison Deaf Association from that. And that's when we went and that's where I took my, my classes from there. So it's really just injecting yourself into an area like that uh, in Austin and go from there. And of course, since you're in Austin, you could be the ambassador uh, as well as, of course, Brendan. Yeah, go ahead, Brendan. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And one more thing to add as well, like in Texas Association of the Deaf too, we can contact everyone out there in the West as well as uh, there's the Austin Deaf Club that I think that's still running. And you can go to different meetings. Uh, I think it's every other Saturday or, or weekly you can look. Um, but yeah, you know, the thing is we need interpreters. We need lots of interpreters. And you might need an interpreter when you're there because deaf people sign really fast. <laughs> uh, uh, next, next, next question. From Ike Potter in Hanover, Germany. Uh, to prevent equipment inside from voltage damage by stormy weather with lightning, is it sufficient to unplug PCs from the wall power, or is it safer to remove the Ethernet cables from a running out a router? Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, both. Uh, if you have a, a storm imminent in your neighborhood, especially if you have uh, if your utilities do not come in from underground, if they're on poles outside, uh, you definitely want to be careful about anything that's plugged into the wall. And that includes cable television signals that may be coming down coax from a pole outside, because that can be a frequent path of high voltage uh, lightning strikes if it strikes a pole outside or the tran transformer outside your house. So both, you want to uh, remove any anything that's connected copper-wise to the outside world, especially if it goes up to a utility pole uh, outside your home. Uh, there are lightning arresters if you have, uh, you know, uh, ham radio equipment. If you have antennas, there are special lightning arresters which you put on those coaxial feeds from the antennas, uh, with which connect to ground rods outside the home to uh, uh, route any electrical charge that strikes that antenna to the ground rod with a little gap in an, in between it. Uh, but for general, you know, general purpose electronics. You're safest if you just unplug everything from the wall 
and disconnect it. And that includes your uh, cable or your phone lines. It can come in on phone lines. If your phone line is hooked up to your stereo system or anything else that's hooked up to, it not only will fry your phones, but it'll fry uh, everything that's hooked up to it as well. Go ahead, Brendan. Yeah, my tech tip as a technician for many, 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 many years is I know in the back, we're like, oh, gosh, got to unplug everything. Got to get everything done. But it's more, it, it's how you run your house too. Like I don't unplug everything. I leave things. And I live in Texas. We get severe lightning storms all the time and I've never had anything break. So the bikes, per, it's great. It's if you're, if you know, might be paranoid and you know, this is expensive equipment. Yes. Unplug things. Just, just to, to be aware of, um, you know, but what's going on? The lightning might go here, the lightning might go there. That's fine. But for me, eh, you know, I haven't, we, it's never happened. I have had never seen happen. Everything's on, 100% running, nothing's been broken. So that's just, I, I, I'm fine with not unplugging things. Good, Robert. Just to Courtney's point there, um, Courtney's emphasized that you unplug at the wall. And the, the, the why he emphasized that, I can imagine, is that if you leave the cable plugged into the wall socket and you leave the cable running through the room, you can get a charge that's dissipated within the room itself. And that becomes very dangerous. So unplugging at the wall is the key to resolving this issue. Next question. Last question in from Robert Cutshaw in Atlanta, Georgia, asking, are you using 5.1 audio now in your office and studio? And if so, how are you integrating it? Go ahead, Courtney. Well, my office is in my living room, so I do have 7.1 hooked up to my uh, uh, 65-inch television set there. And I have uh, JBL monitors. I don't know if you can see one. There's one behind me on either side, and there's other uh, uh, JBL monitors in the front on left and right. And, uh, to tell you the truth, I also have a sound bar on my TV. So when I'm watching TV, uh, with a 5.1 or 7.1 signal, if it's a concert or something, I'll turn it on and enjoy it in, you know, surround. But, uh, if it's just general television programming, you know, your standard, uh, uh, you know, uh, sitcom or something. I'll just listen to it on the sound bar and I won't crank up the stereo uh, very much. So I don't use it as much as I probably should. Uh, I have it in my, in my house. I have a seven, uh, seven one um, in my house and I definitely listen, watch everything in it and notice it pretty quickly if it's not there. Uh, in my office, we have uh, five one because I technically manage events that have five one. Um, in them. And so I have to make what I'm, the reason I have them in discrete speakers and not a bar is because I literally will walk to each speaker to make sure that audio is coming out of it. If I'm, you know, if, if I'm not sure what we're getting as far as a mix goes. Uh, next question. Next question in from Douglas Carmichael. I've been enjoying working on a local genealogy database using MongoDB. If I wanted to build an app around the database, what mobile backends are most popular? You know, I think we, we're probably going to have to put together a kind of mobile development second hour to kind of go through that because I don't think we have a lot of experts on it here on Saturday morning. But uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll take a look at maybe bringing that on on our Friday. Um, next question. From Mike Beardmore in Bedford, UK, for a hybrid meeting, a 30-minute networking break only allows a small virtual group to introduce themselves before time runs out. IRL, is it is enough time... 
sorry about that. It is enough time for a coffee and chat. How can the intro bit be sped up for those online? Go ahead, Jeffrey. I would say direct questions. I'm assuming if you're saying you don't want somebody to start lamenting and all of a sudden uh, one person's taking up 10, 15 minutes of, of an intro. So asking more direct questions, uh, everybody where you're from and go and go, then you should be able to uh, speed up that process and make things go smoother. I, I will just do damage to the 30 minute break. Um, I, what really was the eye opener for me was going to TED and watching how they manage the event. As an event producer, going to another someone else's event is really interesting because you look at how they do everything. And the one thing that Ted does is there aren't any, there aren't any tracks. So there's one track, everybody's going to the same, having the same conversation. They also, everyone, the presentations are 18 minutes long, so that they get to the point. Uh, this is very much in a, I wrote you a long letter because I didn't have right time to write you a short one. They get they work with the speakers to shorten those those talks down to something much faster. The second the, the next thing they do is they spend an hour and a half or two hours between every set of sessions. So they'll have four sessions, and then there'll be this long break. And why do you have a long break? Is because everyone saw the same sessions and they have lots to talk about with each other. It is far far more effective than everything else that I've ever seen in a in a live event. And I think it, it works in virtual as well. Is to, is to have large breaks. And the, and the key is, is that when we put, when we pack all of these events into 20 sessions, I mean, 20 tracks that are doing six at a time, you know, that, that are doing six a day, it's 120 sessions that are all done poorly. You know, generally there's like one or two rooms, I work on these events, one or two rooms where everybody's rehearsed and trained and and they have all the gear that they need and everything else. And then everything else is like a podium, <laughs> like, you know? And so, and it's not, it's not great content. And um, I really think that people need to rethink how they do those because as we move to digital events, which more and more of our events will be, I mean, the, the physical event world is, is going to slowly die out. Um, it won't, it won't completely die out, but it's going to get much smaller uh, than what it was before. And uh, the, as we move to those, we're no longer constrained by time and space. And we can have events last for two weeks or three months or for us every day for the last three years. <laughs> you know? And so, so this is just one large event and we don't have to have, we don't have to, with the reason we packed everybody in was because we had, we had limited, we had to rent the hotel and we, people had to fly in somewhere and they had to do all those things. Those are restrictions that we no longer have. And so, but we're still abiding by them. And I think we'll give that up. Yeah, go ahead, Robert. Just from on the on the online scene, um, at a, um, um, we saw Zoom cuts and and Zoom and Mac shortcuts recently, and they showed a really cool way of setting up a literal thirty second intro that went through the whole of the gallery view in Zoom, so that people could introduce themselves, and they literally had thirty seconds to do that, and that's a very good way because it's mechanical. And you get cut off and move, and the screen switches to the next person. I just, I, I'll, I'll keep coming back to, I think that we're trying to take physical events and fit them into virtual events. So we're trying to take what we used to know. We're trying to take what we know about how to play football and move it to swimming. <laughs> like, you know, and so, and we keep on trying to move football into the pool. Um, and, and the thing is, is that all of these things can be done more effectively in other ways. They don't, they, people put them, put them in there and they go, oh, this doesn't work very well. Yeah, because you're not using the tool the way it, 
it wants to work, you know? And I think that there are a lot of sessions that, you know, I think we're going to be able to kind of, as we move away from that, we're going to look back at those. And, and uh, as someone who doesn't, I, and I will admit, I hate intro sessions like with a passion. <laughs> like, you know, so as soon as you say, hey, we're going to break into five, five a, a small group and we're all going to introduce ourselves, I take, a, I take a bathroom break. You know, like I'm just like, I'm, I'm out of here. Like, and I just disappear. So I, I, so I will admit that I'm, I'm really excited about it going away. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, I love the bevels and the new super source design. How do you create the design and load it into the system? Well, thank you. That was a lot of work on, I think, Mickey or Kevin. Uh, I think, I think, I don't know who, I think it was, I know Mickey was sending me them. I'm not sure if he was comping them together, but Mickey worked on this. So, you know, we're trying to keep on playing with how far we can push the, uh, the, the, um, this, the, the dual screen. And so we're rounding the corners. We have just a little bit of a shadow underneath it. We're going to keep on playing with it. We don't want to make it distracting, but we also want to make it look nicer. So we're, we're, we're playing with it there. Uh, this is a Photoshop file, I believe that is just keyed over the video. So the videos still have the hard edges, but we key over our rounded, rounded corners with an alpha channel that is a window for those to go through. So that's, that's how that works. Next question. Brandon Buttram from Indianapolis, Indiana, asking, I'm studying for my FAA Part 107 remote pilot license so I can fly my drone and charge for my services. Without getting into collusion territory, is there a good way to figure out what I should and can charge for my services? Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Well, you have to learn what the competition is charging. And, and in the Indianapolis area, I'm not sure... And for example, in Los Angeles, we have uh, production directories. You might look around for something like this. this is the creative handbook under uh, equipment rental, drones, drone videography. And uh, you might just call uh, some of these uh, places and get prices from them and see what they're charging in Los Angeles and then price your, yourself appropriately for the area in which you're in. Or if you're, you're planning on uh, flying somewhere, or, you know, you uh, Competing with the big boys, you have to compete with the big boy's salary. And if you underprice yourself too much, uh, you may not be uh, uh, taken seriously. So be careful not to underprice yourself and uh, overpricing yourself. You know, it's fairly competitive market out there these days. Drone pilots are getting more and more competitive. And uh, the larger drones, you know, you would have to be trained. You would have to know how to draw, how to fly the larger camera drones, which may use like Arri Alexa minis and red cameras. Uh, so I'm not sure what type of drone that you have, but if your drone is capable of handling um, multiple different cameras, uh, you know, you could market yourself. Uh, it's a pretty good market for a drone pilot uh, who is, you know, efficient in, in flying camera drones for you know, productions, television productions and film production. Yeah. And, and the key is to do a lot of it first. So your, the price that you charge isn't as important when you get started because you just need to be busy doing it and, and you need to be busy doing it because you need to learn how to do it. Um, so as I, I generally enter most things for free and then I just slowly ratchet things up as I get going and then I usually end up as the most expensive in the space <laughs> so, so so the uh and I'm usually competing on only quality but I but I do that because what I'm not concerned about at the beginning is making money what I'm concerned about at the beginning is perfecting it you know and getting really good at it and not being constrained by trying to figure out how it makes breaks even and if you're going to break into an industry my experience is that's the easiest way to do it is just 
you take a lot of losses at the beginning, you get really good at it. And basically you're, you're getting underneath everybody else that's trying to figure out how to make it, make it make sense. You're getting a whole bunch of business in there for a while. And then you slowly ratchet that up as you have that skill set And as you, as you build it, it's a hard way to, it's a hard way to go, but it's the easiest. It's what I call the wedge. It's like you get, you get the little wedge in there and then you start tapping on it and you just kind of just slowly push your way through it. Next question. Next question in from Paul Wallace at Austin, Texas. Paul asks, what is the best way to do a social wall that displays an embedded HTML or a WordPress blog? We, you know, uh, Paul had listed one. Twine Social is the one we've used in the past and it works pretty well. Um, I, I find them to be not very useful. Like, I mean, I think the people put them up. Be, we have to, one of the things we have to really separate is what do the viewers that, what do the attendees think is cool versus what do the event designers think is cool? And oftentimes it's two very different things. You know, the event designers do things that entertain them because they do them all the time and they're bored, <laughs> you know, and the, the attendees show up and you really want to think about what is going to be great for the attendees. I don't know if the walls make any difference for the attendees. Uh, next question. Mike Beardmore, Bedford, UK. I attended an AirMeet hybrid conference this week. It only allowed one sign-in and disconnected the first login when a second was tried without warning. Would you register twice under different names to get the second screen session for chat in these cases? It's an interesting puzzle. A lot of us uh, try to have events where you can only be one person at one time. Um, so I think that that's what they're probably trying to do is is to make sure it it makes it more authentic to have one person there. Uh, but uh, but I uh, I think some people will try to log in twice. Um, a lot of times we tie things to things that you can't do that with, um, like your credit card or or other things like that. Uh, you know, so that's the. But I would probably log in twice if I really wanted to. Uh, next question. Kyle Hammond in Chicago, Illinois. Um, the question is: My new Obsbot Tiny Two has arrived. What type of chart is needed to do a head-to-head to head test of the Insta three hundred and sixty Obsbot Obsbot Two? Uh, I would I would take a look at um, just look for a, a focus chart. That'd be probably the first thing I would do. Uh, there's focus and detail charts that you can find on the internet, and just print one out, and, and that will probably be the first step of that. Um, and then other otherwise, you know, I would probably start with some images. Uh, let's go to the next question. We're running out of time. Next one, Marty in Roseville asking, I'm using a Yeti Blue mic for a new podcast. Does the room size matter for the best quality of sound that is recorded in a Zoom recording? Go ahead, Mitchell. I would say that the room treatment matters the most because no matter how big or small it is, uh, if you treat it, you're you know, eliminating the biggest problem right there at the source. Next question. Next question coming in from Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado. As electric cars become more common during charge time, do you think that Apple CarPlay could be extended for content consumption and content creation while waiting for your car to charge? It could be. I think that a lot of the uh, car companies seem to be pushing against Apple, and I think it's probably because of the rumors that the car, Apple car is getting closer to the surface and they don't want to um, be the same as the Apple car. So I think that the, as the Apple car gets closer to the surface, I think that they're pushing back a little bit on the interface. So I don't know how many places we'll see it, but it'll be interesting to see. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, and a lot of those apps uh, limit interactivity uh, because they don't want you using it while you're driving, obviously. It can, of course, sense when you're parked uh, and, and enable that, but uh, I, I don't see a lot of use for it, really. It's a very narrow use. 
What's amazing is when you go to another country, there's the, the taxi drivers, everything else, they're watching soap operas on their, on their taxi. <laughs> it's, it's an amazing, like we worry about it a lot and you go to Brazil and it's just screens everywhere. Uh, next question. Matt Parker in Sarasota, Florida. Is there a tool that can make live or manual adjustments to a Mac's display color profile so the output can be lined up on a scope? The goal is recording in an ATEM. Uh yeah, you want look at Spider. Spider Elite is what you're looking for. It will measure your monitor. So you hang it down there and you turn it on and it'll it'll tie it up. And what you do is you run it through the switcher to the monitor and then put it there and then it'll correct for the switcher. All right, we are changing subjects and talking about interpretation uh, today. Uh, we're pretty excited um, to have some real experts here. Robert Sa uh, Sababadi and Danielle Daher uh, is he, uh, here for that and. I will let you introduce a little bit of what you do, but really what we're talking about here is interpretation for languaging, um, and it is really important. Um, I think that the a, a lot of times, uh, as as we work through these accessibility issues um, across the over the summer, uh, this is one that's that's actually fairly common, um, but not as common as it should be. So it's something that, and I find that it's a lot more effective than captioning. Oftentimes, if if that's what you're using for language processing because it allows people to watch as well. I think that it's good to have captioning and uh, interpretation typically with with a thing and ASL. You know, finding way and what we're, you're going to see us doing is trying to figure out all of these things um, as we kind of move forward. But uh, Robert, I can, I'm going to have you kind of set the, t set the, the table for us and tell us a little bit about what, when we talk about interpretation, what, what we're talking about today or what you're planning to talk about today. Josh, is, I think maybe you could do that. And Josh, I'll, no I'll hand it off. We, I'm used to being the host for both hours, and I just like <laughs> ran with it and, and jumped into it. I'm going to hand it off to Josh. Go ahead, take it away, Josh. Well, you, you were doing such a good job. That, that's know, fine. Exactly. That's fine. Yes. Well, you know, of course, Robert is uh, welcome back, Robert. You're getting to me a, an old soul around here, but welcome back, um, Robert. Of course, is the uh, the proprietor of online interpreters worldwide. Uh, so welcome back, and we'll have you uh, focus on some of the operational matters later. But um, as uh, was mentioned too, we have Dr. Uh, Dyer as well. And uh, Dr. Dyer, you are the Associate Professor for Interpreting Studies at the London uh, Metropolitan University and also the Course Director for Master's Degree Conference Interpreting. Could you talk a little bit about uh, your roles? Thank you very much for having me, Josh. I'm delighted to be here with you. Um, well, first of all, um, no matter what your title is, you teach at university. And my main work is to train uh, conference interpreters as well as public service interpreters, more commonly called public, um, community interpreters in the States, actually. So I designed the curriculum um, and uh, I designed the training programs for conference interpreters and public service interpreters. And I align these programs with the needs of the industry. So the two are closely connected. Fantastic. And the other um, handle that you have is the head of business engagement. Can you explain that a little bit? Absolutely. Thank you. Well, I try to connect the needs of the industry with what we do. And because we are quite um, an experts in our field, uh, companies contact us and try to figure out you know, how we could help them, either by providing interpretation services or simply advising them on organizing multilingual support for their meetings and their events. And that was actually quite relevant during the COVID period with Zoom interpretation. 
Fantastic. Now, I think this is something that all of us can empathize with, the need to be able to have um, accessibility uh, through language interpretation. And I, I know that you at least need to know two languages to be an interpreter, but I'm thinking there's probably more to it. Is that so, uh, Dr. Dyer? Yes, that's right. Many people believe that if you speak a little bit of languages or, you know, one or two, you can easily repeat what you've heard. You know, it's very simple. Just repeat, you know, in, in what you've heard in another language. But actually, interpreters are trained um, professionals. They are linguists and they continuously work on their languages. They have um, a number of languages which are organized, and I'll talk about this uh, a little bit later on. But uh, some people think that, you know, because you've got two hands, you can play the piano. Well, it's a little bit like, you know, if you speak more than one languages, you could interpret that. That's not true at all. You've got to be a, a trained uh, professional before you can interpret. Fantastic. I'm sure you can go into that a little bit more, but uh, can we talk a little bit about the uh, professional model uh, for someone that is an interpreter? How is that uh, business model uh, handled? So um, interpreters are organized in different categories. I, I've mentioned already conference interpreters and public service interpreters, and we work quite differently. Um, so if you are a conference interpreter, your languages are organized with an ABC um classification. So the A language is your mother tongue. Usually you interpret into your A language. I interpret into French, for example. Then the B language is um, a, a language you're quite good at. It's an active language and you could also interpret into your B language. And for me, that would be English. But, you know, if you ask me to speak Spanish or Italian, I am not such a good speaker of the, the two languages, but I understand them quite well. So I can interpret from Spanish or Italian into French. So these are my they are my passive languages. So we work with active and passive languages. Um, for public service interpreters, we tend to work with two languages and we go both ways all the time. So it's a little bit um, different. Um, as I've mentioned, we, we continuously update uh, the language, but also the culture. Uh, French, for example, is spoken in France, but also in Luxembourg, in Belgium, in um, in Quebec, you know, and you've got to to be up to date with the with the culture, uh, with politics, with current affairs of this of this country, um, of this country. So yes, it's quite a, a lot of hard work, uh, which is continuous. Yes, thank you for for that information. So uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about uh, the different roles that interpreters will play, the different clients and environments uh, that they'll be working in. Yes, absolutely. Well. Um, interpreters could be in so many different settings. You could interpret for migrants, for example. So migrants arriving at the border, asking for asylum, um, they would need an interpreter. Usually they don't speak the language. Um, so that's one huge category, you know, interpreting at the port of entry of a country and having access to, um, you know, to a, a person who speaks the language and who can give you a little bit more information about the asylum process, for example. Um, you can also interpret in the med medical field. Um, let's imagine you, you go on holiday, and you break your leg, you have to go to a hospital and you don't speak the language. 
and what about the medical care? So somebody needs to help you there. And medical interpreters could be on site, but they could also be online, even on, on the telephone. They, there is also another category of, of interpretation, which is quite relevant, and it's interpreting for refugees. Um, so again, when you are a refugee in the country, um, you do need to access lots of different services, for example, housing, education, um, you know, employment, uh, school, and you do need to have an interpreter who can uh, give you access to these services so that you can um, feel that you're integrating this new society, you know, this, this new country, and you can have you know, access to your rights. So that, that's quite important. So these migrants, medical refugees, you know, again, these are more public service interpreters. And in London alone, for example, in the UK, you need to know that um, the uh, London Met Police uses um, interpreters for about 350 languages alone. So you can see it's quite complex. Then you've got conference interpreters and conference interpreters um, interpret for uh, conferences, meetings, um, typically for international organizations such as the United Nations and NATO, the European Commission or the Parliament, for example, or conferences on the, on the private sector. Um, and there you, it's quite different. You interpret in a booth um, and you interpret in a team. You've got colleagues with you. Whereas if you interpret for um, migrants or in a medical setting, you are by yourself. So that's, that's quite a big difference. Um, as a conference interpreter, you may also interpret with equipment. Um, and it can be fairly complex, especially if it is remote simultaneous interpreting. And then finally, um, there's quite a number of interpreters we interpret for uh, businesses or in the business sector. So you can imagine two companies meeting, they're negotiating and they need um, to communicate um, and they, need, they very often do this with an interpreter. Thank you for that. And uh, Robert, maybe you could fill us in a little bit about the online versus on-site versus the hybrid uh, interpretation setups. Yeah, and traditionally in the, the on-site um, interpretation, you'd have interpretation booth, a specialized dedicated system for the interpreters, um, usually two interpreters per booth. So that would be one language combination. And you can have X amount of booths for the different language combinations that you require. And the, the, the audio signals will be sent out and um, sent out to a system where the attendees can take uh, headsets, choose the channel, in other words, the language that they want to listen to, and just switch and flip between them. Um, what's important for corporate type events is that the, the headsets for corporate events are usually infrared based so that they don't get, get outside of the room in which they're contained just for um, security reasons and to keep the, the information inside the, the room. Um, but for a, a general conference, you'll have... Um, Wi-Fi type-based systems, and, and, and uh, they're much easier and more available to use. When, when it comes to um, on-site, sorry, um, online systems, the two categories of on online systems. One is the typical video conference system that we have in large corporate organizations. So we're talking about Zoom, WebEx, MS Teams. And then you have dedicated um, interpretation systems for online events that are specific just for an event. So you go and 
by, for example, X amount of time, you'll be given uh, X amount of time on this platform and the interpreters will connect on. Sometimes some of these services provide their own interpreters. Um, the main ones uh, are Interprefy, Kudo, uh, those are the big names uh, in the market at the moment. When it comes to hybrid, of course, that's where um, producers usually come on board and audio people because you're trying to connect those two worlds together. And uh, of course, connecting it one way is very simple, but when you connect it two way, that's when the complications arrive and uh, you start using specialized systems to, to mix minus, et cetera, um, all of the signals so that you don't get an overlay of what's going on in the conference and what's coming through to the, the attendees is, uh, ears through the headsets. And uh, Alex, did you, did you want to uh, jump in? Yeah. Um, I, one of the things that we've dealt with a lot with interpretation is uh, in hybrid environments is really that the interpretation systems, especially ones that are built into the building. So, you know, there's some places that we've worked that have pretty robust systems that are built into the building, but aren't designed to interact with the outside world. So do you find that there's more challenges of getting the audio signals out of the out of the, the location interpretation systems into something that we can use for a stream? Um, well, the feeds that come out of these, these systems are usually um, through via copper. And uh, we find and, that we can... Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, so we can we can have them per channel, and then we literally have to have build the channel out of that for for the feeds that we want to put into an online system. But there are systems, and I have seen this as well, where they come out over radio, and the that's where the challenge is because it's even though you can pick up and uh, using a receiver on the channel that is dedicated to a specific language, it gets the the sound quality is really poor. Yeah, one of the things that we found is if you start stacking more than eight channels onto transmission, FM trans, low low power FM transmission, that the uh, crosstalk between them starts to become really problematic. You know, and so we hear little bits of the other things that are going around it. The challenge that we've had so far, you know, with with some of the systems is that while you, while you can get them out of copper, we just don't. It's very hard to get balanced systems out of it. So we get. Uh, headphone jacks <laughs> that we have to convert. So we have to take a headphone jack and then convert it to it, you know, rather than having the system really built for us to be able to get proper audio signals out of the out of the system. The other challenge that we have, and I don't know if you've changed much since we've done broadcast, but audio quality is also a challenge for us where we want a higher audio quality um, than what what a lot of interpretation systems are built for. Um, you know, which have been much more utilitarian um, up until now. Have you noticed that you've had to change uh, what your, the systems that you use to kind of adjust for um, a need for, for higher quality audio? Um, some, one of the, the most popular in Europe systems that we, we use is um, a Siemens system. Mm -hmm. and, and we can get a high quality um, XLR output from the system itself. So that's clean. Um, balanced and, and, and it's just a, like a clean signal. So we don't have an issue with that. But the, the systems that you're referring to that are usually in hotels, conference uh, locations, yes, I've had that problem and we've had to do 
have a lot of adapters to come out from a headset type output and put it into XLR to feed it further down. The other, the other, the other big thing that comes up in in these hotel systems is that um, when they they think that they can do a hybrid with the attendees within the conference room listening to the interpretation over a Zoom channel, for example. And, and that's absolute disaster because the Wi-Fi gets clogged up to the max uh, and it's not to do with the bandwidth, it's not to do with the number of slots available in, in, in a specific Wi-Fi um, frequency. And uh, that's something we've just told people not to do. We refuse to do them. And are you, to, to manage that, are you taking a interpreter signal that, let's say the interpreter is remote, are you bringing that single in as a as one signal and then distributing it out to everyone via, whether it's infrared or RF or is it, or is that how you're just, you're managing that as a separate stream? Um, yes and no. It depends on the scenario because we do have um, conferences where in interpretation, we refer to the main language that is being spoken in the conference as the floor language. So if the floor language is the same as the speaker from the outside, then his sound will go straight through the, the PA system in the conference. If, on the other hand, the conference floor language, if the main language of the conference is, for example, English, and we have a Polish speaker, we will sometimes bring the Polish interpreter feed into the conference room over the PA system and have headsets available for the English speakers, sorry, for the Polish speakers, if they want to listen to the original sound. It depends on the mix and the balance, because the more of these headsets you have in a conference, the more clumsy the whole situation becomes, because you've got hundreds of people coming into the conference room. Each one is picking up a headset. Each one is asking you, how do I switch it on? How do I switch it off? What's happened to mine? And the, the service that is required to maintain that system going throughout the conference is also an overhead that becomes quite, not so expensive, but cumbersome for, for, for a lot of the attendees. Do you do, uh, question, do you do, um, uh, much with cell phones, like just sending it to their cell phone. Is there are there many, many software and uh, that that works uh, to just have the let them choose what channel they want on their cell phone and be able to listen to it that way? We've kept away from that, um, Alex. The, the the once again we're coming back to either it blocks at the Wi-Fi level or it blocks at the low at the nearest um, point of access into the um, LTE network. Um, you just got too too high a concentration of um, of, of um, devices mm -hmm. in one location. Yeah, and it's, as speaking with uh, the two of you, it's it's become very evident that there's a, a certain amount of complexity that has to deal with the whole situation of providing interpretation. Of course, there's the skills of the interpreter themselves, but it's also the arrangement that we're using too. Maybe we can speak a little bit about the teamwork uh, that's used in interpretation. Uh, Dr. Dyer, would you like to comment on that? Thank you. Yes, when we um, work in a conference, we work in in a team and uh, in a booth there is usually two to three interpreters depending on the length of the meeting and we collaborate so when we are on site that's quite easy we can uh, write uh, numbers for each other or any information that could relieve you know our cognitive load 
Um, so we could indicate um, a paragraph, a chapter, page number, you know, so that, that's quite easy. But when we are uh, online, then this becomes very difficult. Um, if we are using a platform, you know, we are at home, for example, as I am now, and we need to have another channel where we can see our colleague and, uh, you know, and, and, and try to communicate. So to help each other, but also to take turns. Um, as, a, as an interpreter, you know, you can only concentrate um, for 20 to 30 minutes maximum when you're doing simultaneous interpretation. After that, the quality of the interpretation deteriorates. Um, and so this is why we swap. Uh, and so how can you swap uh, if you don't hear your colleague uh, on the other channel or if you don't see the, you know, the, the colleague? So we've used very DIY um, uh, you know, solutions at the beginning you know, with a, a WhatsApp video, for example, and just using a finger like that, you know, just saying you know, swapping. Or sometimes it was simply something on you know, written, for example, you know, um, that's, that was live. But the delay uh, sometimes is a problem because, you know, what is really happening in real life and what you receive and then what you say to your colleague, there could be a few seconds, you know, of delay. And that, that's not always um, easy. There is actually um, a platform I'd like to mention, which is called Capisco. And Capisco actually is a platform where you can see your colleague and you work exactly as if you were in the booth. That's uh, one of the platforms I really enjoy um, working with. Um, so, Yes, the, the team function is absolutely essential. Uh, there's also another slight issue when we work on, online is that if, you're in, if your internet connection drops all of a sudden, if you're at home and suddenly you're kicked out of the meeting, um, then your, the other colleague needs to know straight away to provide the interpretation and during COVID, and even now, these things still happen from time to time. And Robert, um, would you like to add to that uh, team functionally as well? Yeah. Um I think we need in our minds to differentiate between um, a produced meeting like this one, where everyone is in a room and can see each other uh, from the production side and the studio side, from a, a conference, online conference meeting, where we have that limitation of not having a back channel. Uh, it's a, just a video conferencing system like Zoom, MS Teams, uh, an ordinary meeting or a webinar. And that's where these additional back channels are required because these systems have not um, developed the interpreter interface to the level that systems like um, Daniel referred to, Capizio, Kudo, or Interprefy, that are dedicated, built for interpreters, for interpreting, as opposed to conferencing systems that are built for presenters and attendees with an interpreting function. And I, I, th I think it's, uh, it's important to understand just what the client expects from the product that the interpreters are uh, producing. Uh, could we talk a little bit about um, just, just what kind of uh, trust is placed in the hands of the interpreter and the organization doing this? Yes, absolutely. Well, the I always say to my students, the interpreter's got to be an added value, not an added problem. And uh, at times, you know, uh, the interpreter could become an added problem. So um, the um, speakers need to put their trust in the interpreter and they will speak their language, their mother tongue, if they feel that, you know, they can trust the interpreter. Um, so the message needs to be 
accurate. Uh, it needs to be um, quite specific. It needs to be clear. You need to be able to communicate so that the speaker feels that you're doing justice uh, to what he or she has to say. And as an interpreter, you are a highly trained person and you've got to be able to understand what the person says, um, um, try to analyze the message and then reformulate it in a way which is which sounds as professional at the right register so that you do justice to the speaker. So this is quite essential. And um, especially when your speakers are heads of states, um, businessmen, or quite famous people. So the trust that you place in the interpreter um, it has to be uh, there and we have to do justice to this trust. Absolutely. Well, let's go briefly. Um, Robert can take us just briefly through um, just what we can expect with the platforms and the interface that we're using while we're doing interpretation. Okay. Um, I'm going to talk just about Zoom, WebEx, and MS Teams because those are the main platforms that, that are used in, in large corporations and that have some form of interpretation uh, services available on them. So, um, Zoom and, and WebEx allow you to put the interpreters directly online. They allow you to, the interpreters to switch between themselves and they allow um, the interpreters to swap language channels. Um, even though MS Teams has the interpretation function, the, um, the interpreter's interface has not been built up yet to the extent that it can be used by interpreters directly. So on MS Teams, you'd probably have one of those additional systems dedicated to interpretation, uh, like we mentioned, plugged in um, into MS Teams onto the two dedicated channels for the two languages being, or three languages that are being interpreted. Um, the the other part is the, the sign language. I know we're, we're focusing on interpretation, but um, in Zoom, we do have the sign language functionality available where the interpreters can be predefined, allocated to the system, and then the handover switches in the same window. So there's no looking and changing windows, pinning anyone. You have one window and the interpreters swap within that window. WebEx doesn't have that functionality. In MS Teams, what they've done is they've brought about, they've brought a, a window for the interpreters that is um, in a fixed position. It's like one of the, the speakers. It doesn't move. And even when there's a presentation, it stays in the same place. So the presentation doesn't cover the um, interpreter, the sign interpreter. Fantastic. Well, we do want to get into some of our questions. Uh, maybe we can have uh, Brendan's comment before we uh, we get into our questions. Go ahead, Brendan. Yes, I'll just keep this short. Um, and also, thank you for adding um, the um, ASL interpreters um, as well, and the the pros and cons of that. Um, on Google Meets, that's one of the issues. Um, you can't um, have that frozen position for the interpreter. And another thing to consider is, well, I'll hold off to the, the questions and it'll be something that'll come up and I'll just answer it then. 
Okay, no worries. Well, well let's get into our, our questions. And um, just to let you know, uh, we will be going through these questions. So feel free to put your questions into Mukana that are tagged for our second hour discussion. Uh, what's our first question? Douglas Carmichael asks, during disasters, human services operations or services for disabled populations are often exempt from stay-at-home orders. If our seamless interpretation were integrated into a conferencing platform, could more services become digital first? I think that would definitely aid toward the uh, that would definitely aid towards the promotion of these services. And um, any of our guests, if you'd like to to jump in, go ahead, Robert. Um, I, I can talk because I'm in Poland about what happened when the Ukrainian um, when Ukraine was invaded by Russia. Um, when there were a lot of refugees coming across the border into Poland, um, what they did then is they they set up a permanent Zoom meeting and with literally hundreds of breakout rooms. And the people would come into the main meeting and be moved to a breakout room where they'd have an interpreter and be able to speak to the person they wanted to speak with. There were interviews in there, and then they'd be moved out of the, the meeting after that. Um, that worked pretty efficiently because uh, obviously the Ukrainians had their Zoom in the language that they knew um, so they could move around. What was tricky was uh, being in the, the main room and just addressing the, the needs, the flow of the people coming in and moving them to the right room. There was no real good tool that was used because they were using a standard um, Zoom meeting for that. Thank you. And Dr. Dare, anything to add? Um, not specifically. I think that Robert answered the question very well. Thank you. Okay, let's go to our next question. And it's from Morgan Price in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. What are some of the requirements we should think about to who to spotlight or pin for interpreter or scaling size of speakers in small, medium Zoom reading, uh, meetings instead of large events? Thinking our size group, we can use Zoom ISO. All right, um, Brendan, go ahead. Yes, this is um, what I was planning on discussing. And I'm, I, I'm not speaking of spoken language, but, um, you know, it's because of the voice that's easier. But for the visual language, it becomes more difficult. Uh, I believe what is important is, you know, I have spoken to, um, you know, people and then here in our first hour, how to, you know, conform the layout for what's best for the population that you're serving. Like with my work with Meta, we have meetings every day, weekly, so many meetings. And I will ask them to um, have a person that is a dedicated person to take care of the spotlighting. When I'm speaking, they'll spotlight me and I will become larger on the screen and they won't spotlight the interpreter when I'm speaking. So the ability to, um, you know, have that ability to turn on the pins or to be able to pin, like in the beginning, well, and actually, some people, you know, don't have the ability to pen like today. But when I can pen the interpreter, 
um, for example, sometimes, you know, when there's a formal um, presentation and someone is sharing their screen, I need to be able to not lose the interpreter when that happens. And like right now, for example, I don't see both interpreters. I don't have them both pinned, which would be better for me. So just having those different, um, you know, having the ability to multi-pin is always good for the deaf consumer. Fantastic. Let's go to our next question. Sorry, could Jonas. I just add on to that? Sure, go Professor ahead. Robert. Yeah, sorry, I missed on that one. Um, what Zoom has done with this pop-out window is really remarkable for a lot of people because it takes away the requirement to have the to have to pin people. Because the, the, as long as you can instruct the people who are wanting to use the function right at the beginning of the meeting that this is how they bring up the interpreter, you're okay. Um, it's a little bit more difficult as you get into the meeting and people come in late because you've got to give them personal instructions. So then you start having to work with chat and all sorts of things. But the Zoom, the Zoom um, pop-up for the or the pop-out for the um, interpreter, the sign interpreter is really, really special because you can move him, you can make him to the size you want. So if you have any visual limitations, you can have a big interpreter on the screen. It's really worth looking at and, and using properly and not using the pinning method that we're so accustomed to because this is a new function from Zoom. It then came up, came in pretty recently. Let's go to our next question. From Jonas Dattel in Stuttgart, Germany. How vital is sync of the ASL and video audio? Should the main feed be delayed to make them in sync? Go ahead, Robert. Yeah, um, I think just looking at what's going on here, you can see uh, you can see the effect of um, how a person is being interpreted. In other words, I am speaking, and the sign language person is um, interpreting me with the visuals and the facial expressions that go with it. Now, the, these interpreters are trained to work in a manner to get the message across in the right way at the right time. It becomes very awkward for people who have been used to seeing this delay to suddenly lose the delay because the, the, it's, it, it's not something that, that they are accustomed to and they have to recalibrate their own way of looking and thinking. I'm sure Brendan could talk more on this, but. Uh, uh, Brendan, would you like to add? Yes, yes. Um, it. It, like for example, for today, um, it's it's working out pretty well. My my experience mostly is with you know video production, not necessarily with this. I mean, I know what you're saying about sync, um, and making sure that um, you know it is working as it should. Like if you're um. And that's it, it's a, it is extremely important. Yes. Next question from Craig McFarlane in Boston, Massachusetts. 
Greg asked, do interpreters focus on listening to the audio exclusively, or do they prefer to see the speaker's video? Dr. Dare. Well, that's a very good question because very often people think again, you know, if you if you hear something in one language, you can repeat it in another language. But um, we do not interpret words, we interpret ideas, we deverbalize a message, and we also interpret the intention of the speaker. And quite a lot is communicated through the nonverbal communication skills. So your facial expressions, the way you stand, the way you move your hands as well, you know. So if we are on site, uh, the booth always has got a very good visibility to the meeting room. And if we are online, this is what we are trying to reconstruct, you know, having very good visibility on the speaker. And sometimes this can be difficult. Actually, at the very beginning of remote simultaneous interpreting, some um, conference organizers thought it was quite good to operate with a mobile phone. And you just listen on one phone and you take another phone and you simply repeat, you know, uh, these still exist, believe me. And this is a no-go area, especially not for conference interpreting. So we really need to see the facial expression because we often say it's one thing to interpret what the person has said, but it's something else to interpret what the person hasn't said, but intends to mean, you know, uh, so it's the intention behind the word that we interpret. That's that's quite important, especially in Thank politics. <laughs> yes, uh, let's go to our next question. And it's from Douglas Carmichael. Douglas wants to know, are there any interpretation services that are accessible via a mobile app in an Uber-like fashion? I could see a real market for this in some use cases. Go ahead, Dr. Dyer. Well, um, I'm not sure what Robert uh, has to say about this, but um, there are companies that provide uh, instant telephone interpreting. And um, for example, Language Line is an American company and uh, it provides emergency services for the police or for hospitals. So if you are a police officer, you've just stopped somebody on the side of the road and this person doesn't speak the, you know, the language of the country, they have got a phone number they can call and straight away you have interpreters who are logged on you know on the system and they can respond um, they can interpret straight away the same thing for emergency services at the hospital um, so sometimes you can also have a video setting with it so for example if you're in a hospital and the person takes a medication you just show the box you know of, of, of medication and the instructions uh, and then the person the, in, the interpreter can translate you know what is written on the medication box, for example, but it's not yet an Uber-like uh, system. It's mainly a company providing services for public services, usually, um, you know, like the home office or hospital, or, you know, the police. That's all I know about. There may be one, but I'm not aware of, uh, of others. Thank you. Go ahead, Brandon. I love this question. And you mentioned um, hospitals and I have had that experience and it was crazy. Um, <clears throat> I wish on demand was literally on demand wherever you go, but it depends on where you are. Um, in hospitals, I have had good results um, in the Austin area. Um, they just pull up this um, this this iPad um, type of equipment that's on this mobile stand and they ask you what language you need and you tell them and they are able to pull up an interpreter. <clears throat> now within the deaf community, we have a service that um, 
could become on demand pretty soon on mobile, but it's only for use by the deaf community. Um, because of, you know, discussion that we have had about having that capability just by clicking your phone. And not only, um, you know, American Sign Language, it would be great to have that for uh, all spoken languages as well. Thank you. Let's go to our next question. From Samuel Nordovic in Norway, have you had acceptable results using tools such as Microsoft Translator or Google Translator or other uh, AI tools for live transcribing and translation? Go ahead, Mandy. Well, in the work I do for um, accessibility technology training, I'll commonly use either Google Translate or Apple Translate, um, especially the camera feature. When I'm helping a client with their smartphones or tablets or computers and one example if the client's device is in spanish i can hold my phone camera in front of their screen and either one of those translate apps will do both optical character recognition as well as language translation in real time and that's very helpful to me um, although personally i do prefer to use a professional in-person interpreter for speaking when available. Um, most typically for me, that's going to be English to uh, Spanish interpretation. Um, there have been occasions where the interpreter was not available for a scheduled appointment. And rather than cancel that appointment, I've used these technologies such as Google Translate or Apple Translate to continue with the appointment. Um, I actually learned Spanish in school for about six years from middle school to high school. And while my reading and pronunciation for Spanish are really good, uh, my understanding of a person speaking is not as well tuned. Um, some of the disadvantage of using the apps to translate are much heavier battery use. So I have to prepare for that with extra uh, battery backup power to either charge my phone or use a external battery for that. Uh, poor translation is always a concern. Um, there are times when the apps just stop listening to you or can't keep up, especially in those live conversation modes. Um, if you don't have a good signal, that's just, and again, I prefer to use a professional in-person interpreter. It bears a lot of the mental load for me, especially when we're dealing with complex topics like screen reader use on a smartphone or a computer. Go ahead, Brendan. Yeah, uh, on my side, of course. So I do use Google Translate uh, on the web for the, that app. Um, the problem is the microphone is very, very small and you have to really like put it up into someone's face and, and it's not always clear. Uh, so my family, it's almost impossible. Sometimes it works, sometimes it not. It depends on how loud someone talks, but a professional product that works, it's loud enough. They have live captioning as well. And those are the right kind of things. I prefer an interpreter. I prefer to actually have an interpreter here though. Uh, it's top or a human captioner, but you can't get that all the time. And anywhere in the world, unfortunately, you can't get that. So next best thing is there, if there's no interpreter there to sign for me, then it, it's there, we can use it. Go ahead, Danielle. 
Yes, if you're in the middle of China and you can't find your way, I think you'd be delighted, you know, to have such a tool, you know. Um, but it's an emergency tool. It's, uh, as, as we all described, you know, it's there when you have nothing else and it's for something that's quite minor. Um, maybe you're going to wait for an interpreter uh, to come in the hospital or, you know. Um, but I have to say that AI is actually used nowadays, and we're exploring this quite a lot, as a way of relieving conference interpreters. So, for example, if you if you're in a conference and the speaker speaking really fast, uh, you're trying to keep up with the pace. Uh, you have got perhaps the text with you, but it's going really fast. So. AI could perhaps, you know, bring the, um, the the numbers, the references, the names on the screen, you know, so you don't have to make that effort um, to remember the number. It's just there in front of you. So right now it's about integrating AI to support uh, the word of conference interpreters. And I think this is quite exciting um, as I think the next few years we're going to see um, loads of new ways to work together, you know, the AI plus interpreters. But I would say in terms of a service that replaces, um, you know, interpreting, it's good for emergency. Remember, I talked about trust. It's difficult to trust the machine. And then um, if you think about the data that is produced, you know, for captions and uh, in a meeting, for example, where does this data go? Uh, when we work as an interpreter, we, we sign uh, a non-disclosure confidentiality uh, form, you know. So what about, you know, when it is interpreted automatically with captions, you know, where is this stored? It's the content of the meeting. So I think that's a question to ask as well. Thank you. Robert? We've actually run a very big event where we were required to provide um, live captions. And the, the way we did it is uh, we used, it was a three-stage process. Um, we used Otter um, because Otter allows you to um, pre-feed it with a certain amount of vocabulary that's going to be used during the transcription to get a, the highest quality of text that we could get out of that. We had someone reading the text and interpreting into a second language, into a microphone. And then we had a cart transcriber who was um, inputting the, 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 into a closed caption system what he was hearing from the interpreter. So it was speaker to otter, from otter to someone who was reading it and interpreting into second language, and then a cart um, transcriber that was just writing it in real time. That was very complicated and the delay was nearly eight to 10 seconds from, from the spoken word. So, but that was the best quality we could get. Next question. From Alex Lindsay here on our panel and Novato, California. For an online event, what is the maximum number of languages that you have supported and how did you distribute the languages? Robert? Well, for an online event, we got two scenarios. Um, one is just pure online where everyone is on the same platform, like on a Zoom webinar. And we've done 12 languages uh, on Zoom, no problem at all. Um, we The way we did it is we had to break down the interpreter teams into teams of three and have one coordinator per three language combinations. Um, what does that mean? It was that 
that that was the interpreter that was making sure that the sorry that was the coordinator that was making sure that the interpreters had everything that they weren't um speaking on the same channel because we all know that that's an issue with with um, online systems um agreeing with the interpreter um who he should mute if the if two people are speaking on the same channel and, and going on the back channel and speaking to the right interpreter etc and for a um, an event that we did that was um, distributed to a corporate intranet, um, we did six. And the way we did it is, once again, we did all of the initial feeds in Zoom. And then we took that out through NDI into vMix. We did RTMP uh, into Vimeo, where we had three embedded videos each with a language channel associated with it. And those six language channels or six feeds with different language channels were brought into the intranet of the corporate organization. Um, it was a workaround, agreed, but that's the only way we could figure out how to make it work. And Dr. Dyer, perhaps you could speak to the interpreter uh, <laughs> side of large events. Yes, absolutely. And also, I would like to mention the same question, but in the context of training, um, because uh, at university, we organize, we organize simulated events. They are mock conferences. And actually, we've got a YouTube channel where you can see all our, all our conferences there. And to train interpreters, we've got 10 languages. So you do need a number of, of, of channels. And we teach hybrid. So we have got interpreters who are on Zoom and interpreters who are on site. So we've got soft consoles on Zoom and hard consoles on site. And sometimes, you know, we have to reconcile the two. So I've just found a way of connecting the two when I designed the interpreting suite, you know, where we are. Um, but it's quite a challenge because for us, um, we are not just speaking at a conference. We are also, uh, as, as, as tutors, we are listening to the original. We're listening to the interpreter and we are writing down accuracy, mistakes, you know, what was done well, what could, what could be done better, you know. So it is quite difficult and it is, uh, uh, you know, a task, which is even more difficult than speaking and being interpreted, is to hear the two channels. So we find ourselves with one headset, another headset, you know, in one ear, you know, um, and it can be quite, uh, you know, quite, quite challenging, but we've, we have found a way. And uh, this way, um, when we have got soft consoles and hard consoles and the hybrid and, and Zoom and web stream onto YouTube, our students are fully prepared for the reality of the market. And when they go to an event organized by Robert, for example, you know, they know um, how to do things, uh, what not to do. And I think that's quite important, you know, um, when we train interpreters is to be up to date with the technology and with the reality of the market. I see Alex would like to weigh in, so maybe he's got you both beat. Go ahead, Alex. Uh, no, no. no. The, the, um, <clears throat> one thing I was going to note is that's why we use these uh, bone induction is because I can have two sets of headphones on without doing the whole, I, I've done that many times, where I've got an in-ear and then I've got over here and then I've got these. And so there's three channels like floating around. Uh, some of, our, uh, some of our, our comms folks will put when they have a they have a, they'll have a mixing station just for listening to things and they'll actually use surround to place people in different places and so they know that oh this is production over here this is this person you know and so they they can spread it out I, which i think would be interesting to work with your team to figure out like what parts of those work as a piece of hardware um you know and it's one of the reasons again we do these saturdays is to figure like to like what is still missing like how do we make it perfect you know is the thing that we want to keep on trying to figure out but the um 
so the, th the interesting thing for multi-languages, um, we've done a fair number of them. I think the, the most, the, the most that, that I've personally done is 12. Um, I've worked on some events where they've, they're doing up to, up to 16. 16 is a hard limit for us because of the SDI signal. So what we do is we, we pack, we embed all of the signals onto SDI. So it's one video stream and 16 channels of audio that are, that are passing through the whole system and it can go everywhere. Most importantly, we can stream it to AWS and then we split them all out into their own streams. And so in AWS, we can have different encodes. And for us, we're using oftentimes HLS encoding. Um, so basically what we can do is using HLS, we can have um, all the streams that are available to the player um, can all be going out together. And then the manifest, the piece of the text that tells the player where things are, if you have a, even just the Apple's AV Foundation player, uh, it will just have a dropdown and it can have audio description, um, all the different captioning languages that might be available, um, the, all the languages that are there. And it's all in one feed um, to get it out. But you need to be able to, you know, either use your own player. The easiest, the hardest part that we have is actually supporting other platforms. The Apple platform supports all of this really easily. <laughs> you literally just say, just give me a player and everything will just work. Um, but Android and Windows are, you know, about a decade behind. And so so they, so they it really becomes like, if we want to support something other than the Apple platform, it's very hard. Uh, usually when people ask for what's an, what we call an MVP, a minimum viable product, we say, why don't we develop on the Apple platform first and then we'll go to the other platforms. And we oftentimes... <laughs> never get there so so it just and so so that's i think that's a real challenge for android and windows is they have to figure out how to support these more more fluidly um you know but whether it's hls or dash we find that that you can stack those up in a fairly effective way but most of the time exactly what you talked about before we're streaming you know a whole bunch of streams and then having embeds and little buttons on a web page and you're just clicking on them and going from one to the next Robert? Yeah. And I just want to sort of build the image of what's going on when you're having 12 interpreters, because um, 12 interpreters or 12 different language combinations, different channels, means that you're, you have 12 languages available for people to listen to, plus what is going on with the speakers. So there's 13 channels, effectively. But... Um, in interpretation, we have two modes of interpreting. We can all interpret from the source language if everyone is speaking the same language or if all the, if the interpreters know all of the languages that are being spoken by the speakers. But that's not usually the case. So what we use is something called relay. And that means that one interpreter, for example, interprets into a base language that everyone, all the other interpreters know, and they interpret from that language into the language that they have been allocated to. So there's like a hop. There's a, the relay is good, is a good way of doing things if the subject matter is not complicated. However, when it gets complicated, um, the, the quality of the final uh, message is lower than the initial message. So that's the, the 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 trick with that. If you want to have, for example, speakers speaking three different languages and interpreters speaking 12 different languages, you'd have to have a full combination of all of those possibilities. 
which becomes very expensive, very difficult to manage from a technical point of view. And that's when relay becomes really important. Dr. Dyer? Yes, I, I think that uh, that's quite, you know, absolutely vital. Um, I'd like to talk about the case of the European Parliament. Uh, we know that the European Parliament has got 24 official languages. And during COVID, um, you have, you know, the European Parliament in Strasbourg, and you also had interpreters in Brussels. You had speakers in their home countries, and you also had interpreters at home. And they managed to reconcile, um, you know, a system that allowed all the interpreters to interpret with quality sound um, at, at the event. So um, there is there are solutions. I mean, between Strasbourg and Brussels, there, there was a, a cable, a very expensive cable called the bridge that was set up to allow interpreters, you know, from different sites to interpret. Um, and the language combinations were hundreds of them, you know. Um, so that, that's one thing. So that's, that's a case that's worth looking at. Um, and the second thing that I would like to mention is the sound. Um, we're all talking about technology right now, but interpreters need very good sound uh, to, to be able to interpret. And very often speakers do not have a headset. They do not have the equipment that we've got right now. They're using external um, speakers, you know, from, the, from their computer. And interpreters can have quite a lot of um, issues with their hearing. We suffer from acoustic shock, for example, um, being exposed to poor sound. And so now we are trying to define um, what is a good sound. And we're trying to educate our client and tell them, look, we can't interpret now. This sound quality is not good enough. Um, so I think that I wanted to highlight, you know, the, uh, the need for good sound and also the complexity of it all as Robert has explained, and you can see this at the European Parliament. Robert? Um, let me just continue on what um, Danielle has mentioned. If, you, if this evening when you go home, you sit in front of the television, you listen to the news, and you repeat everything that the person is saying, you will understand what the cognitive load is on just listening and speaking at the same time. It's a very, very difficult task. And the thing about doing that is you need to be able to speak at a level that the microphone that you're speaking into picks you up, but you also need to hear at a level that you can understand. So the volume of the sound in the headsets is really high for the interpreters. And they use special um, headsets that have um, sound suppression over a certain level. They just cut off or they reduce the level of the sound so that their ears don't get, or they don't get hurt because their ears do eventually get damaged because of listening to such high volumes all the time. Let's go to our next question. From Craig McFarlane in Boston, Massachusetts. Craig asks, are there specific changes you'd like to see to the top conferencing tools that we could help by requesting or voting up? Brendan, I have a feeling that you have one. I have a few, yes, to talk about, um, but others, I, I would love you to all join in as well. And, and it really is up to everyone, but I, you know, why not ask first, what's your pref language? Is it signed? Is it voice? And then automatically refer to something automatically. So there's no thing you have to go through. It's automatically set up. That would be great for all of us to have. Will they do that? Who knows? Another one. Ability to everyone have their preferred 
maybe shared screen, maybe it's a speaking, a, a spoken language interpreter or not. Uh, does Google have something, something like that, where you can just have that box and you can control everything for that interpreter on my, on the client's end. And then the discussion we had to give like multi-pinning, uh, you know, two or three years ago with Zoom, we, we really wanted to have that automatically where I could pin and have that multi-pin instead of having the host have to give me that, have that included in Zoom automatically, please. That would be great. Thank you. Dr. Dyer. Yes, um, at the, um, when we do our mock conferences, at the beginning of the event, I ask all my students who are interpreters to have their cameras on um, so that we see who the interpreters are behind the scene and that we understand that they are not machines, that they are real people. And at the end of the meeting, I ask again my students um, to have their cameras on to thank them for their services so that we, um, we really understand that interpreters, even though we we often say that we have to be invisible, um, are visible, um, because um, loads of people think that, you know, uh, with captions, with AI, um, you know, it's very easy. You just press a button and here it comes. Uh, so we are real people. And I think it's high time that we have a bit more visibility so that um, users understand who we are and what we do. And then the second feature is about um, when we provide interpretation on, on Zoom or, you know, one of these platforms, um, sometimes the experience of the user on a tablet or on a mobile phone or on a desktop, it's not always the same. And sometimes you have to find, it's not easy to find the interpretation. So I wish it was more visible so that a user can see where to click to access interpretation at, at, at a glance, you know, regardless of the device that you use. And then finally, if I can, if I can have a Father Christmas that brings me a third present, you know, it will be about the audio quality um, of the headsets um, and the sound and education of the users on using the same kind of equipment so that we can interpret safely. Thank you. Well, thank you, Dr. Dyer, Robert. Uh, Sababadi, we appreciate, I think we really feel a little bit more about the complexity, particularly around the language uh, interpretation. We appreciate the uh, of getting it from both the, the skill and the, the talent of doing it, as well as the complexity of the system. So we appreciate that. And we appreciate having um, all of our accessibility panelists and those in the community. So if you'd like to uh, follow along, we're, we have the through to July, we're going through our accessibility uh, second hours on our Saturday. So follow us along as we, we're doing our own experiment to see how we can support these. So with that, um, we have just a few announcements. Uh, we have 66,539 miles and 107,000 kilometers. That's 1.2.7 times around the earth and a lot of bananas. I think it's 560, 26 million uh, bananas for scale as well. Um, please look at our upcoming uh, shows, our, our next uh, our next week's schedule is out in our email. So check for our later programs. And with that, we're going to go into after hours.
Thank you, Robert. Thank you, Danielle. Thank you, all of you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. more bananas than miles. Those must be some really long bananas. <laughs>